First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. On today's episode, how COVID-19 long haulers fight for understanding from their employers. When the coronavirus pandemic hit the U.S. in March, part of what made it so dangerous was the fact that we knew so little about this disease. We didn't know exactly how it spread. We didn't have a full understanding of the symptoms that it would cause. And even now, almost eight months later, we are still learning about the virus. One phenomenon that we are coming to see more and more that contradicts conventional wisdom about how COVID-19 affects a person is the growing number of long haulers. These are people who contracted the virus and continue to have lingering, often debilitating symptoms months after the initial illness sets in, sometimes with no end in sight. Fast Company staff writer Pavithra Mohan has been reporting on this growing community of long haulers and joins me today to share what she's found. Pavithra, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's get more specific because this is a kind of a difficult subject to wrap our heads around. You've, you've talked to a number of people who are afflicted by this long haulers. What was their experience? Yeah, it's complicated. And I think while long haulers have gotten more media coverage in recent months, a lot of people are still just clueless about what this community is experiencing. I want to start by telling you the story of a woman from New Jersey who we will call Alexa. She asked that we not use her real name to protect her anonymity. Alexa is an office manager and like the rest of us had her whole work life and personal life turned upside down by the pandemic. There was a lot of confusion at that time and some people weren't taking the pandemic as seriously as they should have been as all of us know. But that wasn't the case with Alexa. I was kind of like I was telling you before, I was kind of the the one who was talking to friends about, mm-hmm. you know, please be safe, mm-hmm. you know, really being extremely careful, mm-hmm. um, did not go out of the house, mm-hmm. uh, was ordering, you know, groceries, getting things delivered, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And went to the grocery store twice during that month. And the week that I got sick, I had gone to the grocery store. Alexa still doesn't completely buy that she could have contracted COVID at the grocery store. She had experienced very minor symptoms before the shutdown, but those went away for a full month before more severe symptoms set in. The first of which was fatigue. And it took her mom calling it out for her to notice. I am a singer as well. And oh. so I was doing some Facebook lives throughout the quarantine. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I did one the night before I got sick. And my mom had said, you look, you looked exo- extremely exhausted. Mm-hmm. And you sounded like you were having a hard time catching your breath. Oh. And I remember that, that 
night on the Facebook Live, the Thursday, and I got taken on the Friday. Yeah, and so this was a time really early on in the pandemic when we didn't have a good idea of what the symptoms were or really how to differentiate it from a regular cold or flu or anything like that, right? Exactly. And for Alexa, her most prominent symptoms were gastrointestinal. And once those started, they didn't go away. It was like a nonstop, every day, sick to my stomach. I literally couldn't get out of bed for at least two months. Like I was in, I was in quarantine in her house pretty much in the spare room Mm -hmm. for, for most of those, like a good, probably good month and a half, two Mm -hmm. months. And I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I couldn't eat. There was just nothing. I knew that this was something that was just greater than anything I had ever had before. Alexa was entirely incapacitated, not to mention isolated for fear of spreading the virus. It just lingered and it lingered and it lingered. And I still am hopeful that it's going to Mm -hmm. be a better day, but it's still happening. And now Mm -hmm. I have just, it's just damaged my body so much that I have all of these symptoms that I didn't even start with. Oh God, that that just sounds so awful. Did did she was she able to get tested? Did she get to see doctors? How did she address what was happening and and what was she told? So this was early in the pandemic when things were really dire in New York and New Jersey in particular, and so it was really hard for her to get tested. You know, she was originally told that tests were being saved for healthcare professionals, and when she did eventually get tested, it came back negative. But multiple doctors she saw told her that her symptoms were consistent with COVID and that there was really no point in her getting tested again. And at the time, the gastrointestinal issues she was experiencing were still new, but her doctors had started seeing COVID patients present with those symptoms. So what's astounding is how consistent many of these symptoms are for long haulers. Many of them experience extreme fatigue and brain fog, and and those symptoms can persist for months, even after they start to feel better. Some of them face gastrointestinal issues like Alexa and headaches or a fever that just never goes away. And often they might feel like they're getting better and then things take a turn or a new symptom surfaces or maybe they cycle through different symptoms over a span of weeks. And many of them obviously say that, you know, this has had a significant toll on their mental health as well. That's that's really interesting because I think that piece about early on in the pandemic and I think you know because we're so far into it we we maybe have forgotten this but there was that time when people would have these symptoms and either they would think oh well it can't be that because it hasn't reached us yet or it's not you know it was like before you know as we've learned like COVID was actually in the U.S. earlier than we thought it was so probably people were getting sick with it long before they thought that it was actually there And then the other thing is that, you know, that I think we've forgotten that you mentioned is tests were not widely available and doctors were discouraging people from getting tests. So there's this whole period of time where people probably got sick with it and didn't know. And if you're, you know, quote unquote lucky, you got sick with it and got better and maybe just never knew. But these this group of people got sick with it, didn't know, didn't get tested then, you know, it's out, they're, they're going to test negative by the time they get tested, but they're still experiencing symptoms. And so it's kind of this like, can I, I can't believe myself. Nobody believes me. Is this really true? But I'm still sick. Like it's, it's so hard to wrap your mind around how difficult that would be. And like, obviously that's going to take a toll on your mental health. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's also tough is for many of them, even when they talk to friends about what's going on, people are telling them, hey, like you're, you're supposed to get better in two weeks. Why haven't you mm-hmm. gotten better? And, and so they feel like there's really nobody who quite understands. The medical community was not able to get a grasp on, you know, what this looked like. And so many of them felt like they were being sort of gaslit by their doctors, mm-hmm. that people weren't really listening to them. And so it's yeah, it's just been it's been really challenging. And so, you know, you have all of these physical symptoms, um, but you obviously, understandably, are kind of dealing with all of this stress and anxiety and often depression um, surrounding that. And so it's it's just been it's been really difficult. And and for many of them, not being able to get a positive test or not having access to testing has been a really big issue. That's been pretty consistent. Yeah. And I mean, that's it is that, you know, the, a lot of the, the symptoms are kind of invisible, like people cannot see necessarily that you are feeling fatigued, especially or that you're having brain fog or that you have gastrointestinal issues like they're they're not things that you look at a person and like, oh, they're they're very clearly sick. And then we also, you know, like like you said, we th- think we know things about this disease, but we don't. We think, oh, it's 14 days. We've heard 14 days over and over again. So magically in 14 days, you're better. But this is such an unknown that we're learning so much more about how it affects different people, how, you know, different age groups for a long time, right? It was like, oh, young people aren't affected. No, turns out they are. No, kids aren't affected. No, turns out they are. Like all of these different things we're learning. and, And this is just a huge piece of it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even if we're looking at people who present with a more typical prognosis, I mean, it's been seven months. We we don't really know what the long-term effects of this can be. And so I think for this community, it's just been really hard to find um, support. And, and many of them have turned to support groups in large part because of this. And I think that's been a real source of comfort uh, in recent months as, as those have kind of grown in size and people have become more aware of them. So this is something I talked to Fiona Lowenstein about. Fiona is the founder of Body Politic, which is a queer wellness collective. And she started a Slack support group after she got sick with COVID-19. If you're a long hauler in New York, you probably got sick, you know, in March or April, if you've been sick for four or five months. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard to get a test back then. So lots of these people couldn't get tested. And then they have no record of having the virus. So they're going to doctors with kind of a mystery problem and they're being treated by you know, when, they, when they're calling the various departments, local departments, applying for disability benefits and all this stuff, it's, again, they have no, they have no concrete, like, you know, condition because they, mm-hmm. because they didn't test positive. Even the ones who were diagnosed by their clinicians um, right. didn't test positive. So Fiona originally started the group for anyone who had COVID, but long haulers kind of became a prominent voice in the group. And remember, at this point, we really didn't have any idea that this would even be a potential complication. But in Fiona's group, the firsthand experiences pointing to this really became apparent pretty early on. Sort of kind of the beginning. I mean, the first inkling that I got that this would be an issue was in March when I was just first speaking to these these patients that I had connected with, like, you know, who had reached out to me because I had written about my experience in the New York Times, and so they were, you know, trying right. to connect. Um, there was a lot, they were mostly young people, and there was one person in that first little chat group who was a fitness instructor, mm-hmm. and um, it made me realize, I mean, I, I was also a gig economy worker. I mean, I am basically a gig economy worker. I haven't had, like, a salaried position with healthcare in a long time. Um, right. So it, it just sort of made me realize, like, 
that there was going to have to be a conversation about certainly like paid time off and, and, you know, people negotiating with their employers, but that also a majority of young people living in cities, you know, don't even work that kind of job. And so mm-hmm. that a lot of us were dealing with was just like, you know, do I cancel my yoga class for the fourth week and, and try and find a sub and not get paid, you know, yeah. um, that those were like the types of issues that were coming up at that time. Um, and, you know, for myself, it was like, I, basically was like quitting a bunch of gigs that I was working on, the ones that hadn't been shut down because of the pandemic. And then I was just not, you know, you're, you're just not hustling. You're not like reapplying to stuff or looking for new gigs. So I want to pause here and dig in a little bit to what Fiona just brought up, because that's such a huge piece of it. The, the economic and work life implications of health issues and long-term health issues. And especially, you know, as she pointed out, when you are a contract worker or a freelancer or a gig worker and you don't have paid time off, you don't have paid sick time, you don't have leave time necessarily, and you might not also have health insurance and what you what it means when you don't work. Yeah. So, you know, as Fiona said, this really put gig workers like herself in a bind. Um, she mentioned that she worked a bit even when she was very sick and really shouldn't have been working. And the only reason she managed it was because she was doing freelance writing and could kind of set her own schedule and make sure she stopped working by a certain time, sleeping, you know, 12 hours a night, she said. Like she was able to kind of do that because she had the flexibility. But so many people really don't have that. You know, they can't work from home, they can't set their hours. Or like Alexa, their symptoms are so debilitating that, you know, there's no way they can work at all. And so a a big hurdle for many of them, I think, is that companies are still very unfamiliar with their prognosis. And so they've struggled to get time off um, when it was clear that their recovery would exceed two weeks or in many cases they were just let go. Yeah, I think I mean, there's so many factors at play there, because I think we take for granted, you know, those of us who have work from home jobs, those of us who have jobs that you can do in front of a computer of of even if you're not feeling great, that you can still kind of muster work. But if your job can't be done at home or if your job is physical, you know, you have to be feeling really well to be able to work. And and if your job is public facing, you know, how dangerous it is. Like you mentioned that she like worked while she was sick. Like a lot of people do that a lot. This, you know, this has been happening forever before COVID and, you know, COVID again has just shown a light on it of, this mentality of Americans and especially with those without health insurance and, and other benefits of like, okay, I have to press on. I'm going to go to work sick and how dangerous that is now. But, but yeah. And then also just how unfortunate it is that are for most people, their health insurance is tied to their employment. And when your employment is not a salaried full-time position that it, can mean that you don't have health insurance either and what that would mean for a chronic long-term illness. Exactly. And, you know, speaking of people who have to be in person, they they don't have the option of working remotely. One of the women I spoke to, um, Angela Shearer, she's a healthcare worker. She lost her job of 14 years after she got sick because obviously she needed to be there in person and she was just unable to do that. And her employer kept the position open for a few months, but eventually said that they needed to fill it. And so in cases like that, I mean, again, this is somebody who has insurance through her employer. So, you know, she's not a gig worker. But even then, she was able to secure short-term disability, but now her coverage has run out and she's trying to get long-term disability. Um, But even when you do have employer 
insurance, you know, you're not necessarily set up to weather a long term illness. And I, I think with, when it comes to disability, another long hauler I spoke to, you know, she's faced an endless onslaught of really severe symptoms. In fact, I was only able to talk to her via email because she lost her voice a few months ago and she's still hoarse. And she's been unable to work for six months. And it's been a huge financial strain because she was denied disability benefits. So, you know, it's people like are being put in such a difficult position here. And even if they have insurance through their employer, I mean, if you're denied disability, you really cannot go on for too long without um, going back to work. Yeah, I mean, all of that, the financial strain is so huge. And that, you know, that gets back to everything that we've been talking about, you know, in our in our education series that we did in the, the first part of this season, all of the everything about the pandemic, basically, it has just shown that the inequalities that have already existed, it has made them so much worse. And, and we talked about, you know, for example, again, with the education series, the access to in-person learning and how that makes such a difference depending on your social economic status. And it's kind of the same with your job, right? If you, you know, if, if you have the sort of a public facing job, a, an essential, all of those essential workers, those, as we've, you know, covered are usually a lot of, in a lot of cases are lower paid. There are a lot of cases, um, mostly people of color. Um, but then here it's also like another tier of awful, right? It's if you happen to have health care, if you happen to have gotten sick at the like quote unquote right time and had access to a test, if you happen to have good health insurance, if you happen to have a, an employer that will offer you paid time off, you know, all of these these things, or if you happen to, you know, as, as we're covering here is this whole big issue. If you happen to have been lucky enough to have the right case of COVID, right? The, the case of COVID that lasted just 14 days and didn't have lingering symptoms. Mm-hmm. So stick, sticking with the issue of health insurance, um, you know, as we know in America, most people's health insurance is tied to their jobs and millions of people have lost their employer-based health insurance during the pandemic. Did you come across that in your reporting and how and how your your employer health insurance and losing your employer health insurance would would impact these long haulers in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely an issue that long haulers are facing. To go back to Alexa, she was actually in a really scary situation with her employer based insurance. As I mentioned earlier, she's an office manager and she works at a dentist's office in New Jersey. And her office was returning to some level of work after they got uh, a PPP loan. But she was obviously still too sick to return, which she told her employer when they called a staff meeting. I got um, a notice in my email stating that my insurance was going to be terminated if he didn't get a check within a couple of days um, for this month. Oh. Meaning May. So he mm-hmm. was going to be terminating my insurance. I had the option to pay for my COBRA insurance mm-hmm. and that he would pick it back up if I returned to work for him, you know, whenever I was well enough to return to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but as of May 1st, my insurance was going to be terminated if he didn't get the check within 10 days. No 45 wow. day notice. Yeah. Nothing. 
So, so I just want to pause for a second and, and talk about COBRA. COBRA, for, for those people who don't know, is a program that allows a person to continue to buy into their in current health insurance from their employer for a period of time after they, they lose their job. Uh, most employers are required to participate in the program, but it's not cheap for the individual. So Alexa gets an abrupt notice about her insurance, right? So th- then what happens? So she gets her insurance check-in as soon as possible. And at this point, you know, she she thinks everything's fine. She's taken care of the issue. And she is, like, really, really at her worst. She is in and out of doctor's appointments. She's made multiple visits to the ER. And again, all of this time, she's been told that her job is waiting for her when she is ready to return and that she still has access to health insurance. Then one day, after she schedules an emergency colonoscopy and endoscopy, she gets a call with some bad news. Basically what happened was the insurance broker that works for him, the doctor, my my boss, Mm -hmm. said that he called on the 4th of May, which was the day that he sent the email. He called the broker and said, terminate her insurance. That's just gutting and for for anyone who's experienced something like that or had that happen you know exactly how that feels it's this feeling of absolute panic because there is nothing more essential than getting medical care and especially when you're right in the middle of needing it but the healthcare system is so opaque that you have no idea how much things will cost so if you're in a situation where you need a test done or you need something done you're not going to say no but you're also having this panic feeling of am I going to get an eight thousand dollar bill after this you know Yeah. And I mean, it really was a moment of panic for her. Initially, when she learns that her insurance is denied, she has no choice but to say that she'll pay out of pocket for the procedures just so that she can move forward with them. And remember, these are tests that her doctors have deemed necessary. At this time, she is at her sickest and they've said, you have to get these procedures done. And her boss coolly kind of explains this away as a clerical error. And he does eventually reinstate her insurance. But for a few weeks there, she was under just an immense amount of stress. She had no idea how she was going to pay her medical bills. And Alexa also took this experience as a sign that her employer maybe didn't have any intention of letting her return to work. So you can understand that why this kind of threw her for a loop. Yeah, I mean, the the last thing that you need to be dealing with when you're feeling that sick is the bureaucracy of of health insurance and trying to figure it out and and worrying about that and worrying about your employment. It's, you know, what just strikes me about this whole story about long haulers is that it brings into focus how we need to kind of grapple with the the medium and long-term effects of the pandemic and not just the the short-term effects and both in general and for long haulers themselves. And that's something that we're going to dive into after a quick break. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. And we're back. So let's look a bit forward and talk about how long haulers are trying to reenter the workforce, if they are. Um, Have you talked to anybody in that position? 
Yeah. So I want to preface this by saying that obviously for many of them, this is just not feasible right now. You know, they're not in a position to start working again. But one of the long haulers I talked to was Melanie Montano. And she, like Alexa, started getting symptoms early on, but couldn't get a confirmed positive test or a doctor to confirm her diagnosis. She actually felt like her doctor very much gaslit her that he really didn't want to understand what was going on with her. And it took a lot of pushing on her part to finally get him to kind of accept that these were, in fact, COVID symptoms. And so she at the time that she fell sick, was an adjunct writing professor. And her employer expected her to just continue working remotely since her doctor wouldn't confirm her diagnosis at the time. So initially, like so many people, she tried teaching remotely, but she found that she just could not keep up. And going forward, she worries that this may not change. So that is my biggest like fear of not being able to work like normal or have people take me seriously. There is that Mm -hmm. stigma that I do have the the coronavirus. You know, is she going to be physically capable of handling this workload? Yeah. Need, like extra attention, this and that. Can we afford to have her on, on board if she's not able to comply with all of her duties? So even if she was in a place where she thought she could handle a particular job with her health issues, how does she broach all of this with a potential employer? One thing, like, I don't know when I apply for jobs, do I tell them? Do I not tell them? Will they look right. at me? Will they think that I'm not fully capable of actually doing the the job that I would do effortlessly if I was not, you know, stricken with this virus six months ago. So what Melanie is describing really sounds what like a lot of people with disabilities face when they're applying for jobs. Right. And under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you do have to show that with or without an accommodation, you are able to perform what's called the essential functions of the job. But people with disabilities, you know, often they're not getting the accommodations they need, even when they are perfectly reasonable ones. Or like Melanie, they might worry about how to disclose a disability during the interview process. Right. That makes a lot of sense because, you know, you even though, you know, it's legally required, you you want to make the best impression and put the best foot forward and, and saying that you need accommodations or saying that you have a, a disability, you know, you might worry, like she said, that, that you're going to get passed up for the opportunity. I do want to pause for a second and think about, you know, something that I noticed in your reporting. All of the people that you talk to are women. Is, is this something that you've you learned affects women more or why is that? Yeah. So the data we have so far has indicated that this seems to affect women more. I do want to note that it's also possible that women are the ones who tend to flock to support groups more and they tend to seek out support more. So Mount Sinai, which is a hospital in New York, has one of the few uh, programs that is specifically treating long haulers. And some of the initial data they've seen has also indicated that this does seem to affect women more. And so I, I would add there that women do also tend to experience some form of medical gaslighting more often. You know, they they often feel like they go to the doctor and they are not necessarily getting the support that they need or their symptoms or experiences are not taken quite as seriously. And that's even worse for women of color. And so I think that's an important piece to this as well, is that many of the people who are long haulers and are seeking out medical attention are people who have already experienced some form of like skepticism from doctors. And so this is really kind of compounding that experience for them. Yeah, that makes it so much harder 
one, to get the diagnosis or to get the confirmation that what you're experiencing is real. But then two, if it is affecting women more than men, you know, as we've exhaustively covered at Fast Company, women have such a more difficult time in job interviews and negotiations, you know, already kind of at a detriment to to white men in particular, and then bringing bringing up, oh, also, I, I have a disability and need extra accommodations can be even more challenging, I imagine, for for women in this situation. And you you did actually talk to an expert about all of this. Can you give us an idea of of what they think ideal work options are for long haulers? Yeah. So I, I talked to disability lawyer Gary Phelan about that, and here's what he said. Ideally, the best option is to, you know, to continue to be employed and to get some sort of accommodation. That may be, you know, the most common one is, is well, the two most common ones. One is to um, be able to work remotely. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's not a, you know, always an automatic solution because mm-hmm. only about 40% of jobs are you able to work remotely, number one. Number two you know, the effects that it's having on people, um, a lot of them really can't work. You know, the individuals with this, with severe right. effects, so they're really not, you know, particularly the um, fatigue is they're really not able to work. So mm-hmm. for those people possibly working part-time um, is another accommodation. Um, this, but the, you know, the other, uh, I, I'd say that that's really the second, is it still working remotely but working part-time. Mm-hmm. Um, the third is just, you know, uh, a leave of absence, whether it's paid or unpaid. So obviously this is something that's come up throughout the episode, this idea of getting disability leave or disability benefits. One option is to take an unpaid job protected leave of absence, which is covered under the Family and Medical Leave Act and is supposed to secure your job for whenever you're ready to come back. But again, not every worker is eligible for this. So it really does depend on your employer and what's available to you. And then the other option is short-term or long-term disability coverage, which secures you some percentage of your income. But as evidenced by Candace's experience, you know, there's no telling how insurance companies might respond. And so even if you are eligible, you might be denied coverage. Yeah. And, the you know, the thing I want to point out about both of those. So the family medical leave is 12 weeks maximum. As you mentioned, it's unpaid. And yeah, so it basically just means that your job is still there in 12 weeks. But as you mentioned, it only applies to certain employers. So you have to have worked there for a year and your employer has to be of a certain size. Like it, um, a lot of small businesses are exempt and a lot of people work for small businesses. And then for short term um, and long term disability, there's also a, a cap on how long. I think they're they're a bit longer um, in some cases than the 12 weeks, but they're usually at a fraction of your pay. So and again, like it depends on your type of employer. So none of these leaves are you're still getting all of your your pay and benefits in and completely protected. There's so many ways that you could not qualify for them. Exactly. And I think as we talked about earlier, you know, there are some people who may be secured short term disability, but long term disability can be a lot more challenging to get. And so they're looking at many, many months of recovery and there's no telling, you know, how much financial support they'll have during that time. So as you mentioned at the very top of the episode, this is all brand new, and we're still learning so much more about long haulers and their prognosis and the symptoms that persist and, you know, how long they might be affected, and that creates issues. Increasingly, people who are long haulers, you know, are unable to work. The problem is because of the uncertainty, and, you know, the medical community 
certainly is not, uh, um, you know, in many ways, well, well, I, I should say the biggest barrier is just insurance companies because right. of the insurance, because of the uncertainty um, and kind of vague diagnosis, that lends itself to giving them a right, you know, or the opportunity, I should say, not the right, mm-hmm. to deny coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it, it's it's getting um, very hard for people to get long-term disability. Mm-hmm. Um, another option is, you know, Social Security disability insurance, um, or you know, Social Security basically from the government. Once again, you know, it's a it's a tough standard where you have to show you're unable to work. Yeah, this is all so complex. Like just listening to it as a healthy person, it's complex and hard to understand. And then when you think about when you are feeling so sick, trying to to parse through all of this, you know, it's are you so sick where you have to try to get long-term disability and prove that you can't work at all? Or are you sick but still able to work and then you're getting short-term disability or you're asking for accommodations at work? So for those people, right, for those people who are starting to go back to work but they need accommodations, like how do you even begin to ask for those accommodations? Yeah. So, I mean, as Gary said earlier, you know, the best case scenario for many long haulers who are able to work is either remote work or remote work and part-time employment or just part-time employment. And it it's just hard to approach these conversations. You know, companies really need to be willing to work with their employees. And one thing you'll hear a lot is that when employees are approaching these conversations about accommodations, they really have to look at it as a negotiation, you know, the, the way they might approach a promotion negotiation or a raise negotiation. And so they, they kind of have to navigate that very carefully. But I, I think we want to remember that during this time, companies also need to change how they're maybe looking at disability. Um, they need to be more understanding and accommodating. And I, I think that's going to be a big part of how these long haulers are able to move forward. Yeah, it's something that unfortunately, when we talk about it, it ends up falling on the the individual themselves. And, you know, as we touched on, especially like with the the issue of it being primarily women is is all of those, you know, as we've covered again, like all of those biases that come in when you try to do a negotiation or ask for something. And it's all so much in the wording. It's not I need this accommodation. You, You have to give this to me if I get this job. It's here's how we can work together and here's how this will still benefit you. It's this like jigsaw and so difficult to do. And it, unfortunately it shouldn't happen that way. And it, and it really, the responsibility does lie with employers to understand this better, but it's, it's such a difficult position. Right. And I mean, really the thread throughout what we've been talking about is that the burden has fallen so heavily on these long haulers to figure all of this out, you know, not just their health, but also what it means for their working lives. And so one woman I heard from, Margot Gage, said that there was no way that she would be able to teach this fall. She she knew that it was just not going to be possible. And so she had to kind of push her employer a lot to offer a new agreement that would let her work at her own pace and wouldn't require her to be in the classroom. And so I think that's an example of where her employer was ultimately willing to work with her, but really a lot of it fell on her. And I I think hopefully going forward, we're going to see that as there is greater awareness of what long haulers are experiencing, that companies will understand that this is something they have to take into account. So one thing Gary is also advocating for is 
for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to recognize COVID as a potential disability. So right now there's a lack of guidance around this and it's made it much easier for insurance companies to deny coverage to people who are trying to get short-term disability, for example. But Gary is not especially optimistic that this will happen anytime soon, likely not until the courts start to have to actually rule on COVID cases. So, you know, there's no telling whether that will happen, but that would be another way to kind of help long haulers secure these accommodations. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's a hopeful idea, but it does sound like it's something that's way in the future and they need help now. Yep, absolutely. So I want to go back to Melanie for kind of a final thought. You know, she's made it really clear that she does want to go back to work. And as is the case for many long haulers, she told me that she wants to bring attention to the fact that people like herself want to go back to work. You know, they have the will to go back to work. The endurance may not match the will, but, but, you know, my my capabilities are not any different. I'm still the same person with my master's in creative writing. I'm not any different mentally. Right. It's my physicality that's kind of been altered and uprooted. So the long-term health effects that they're experiencing are just one of the ways in which this pandemic is going to really leave some scars on work life and on communities and, and on the world. You know, millions have been infected in the U.S. and there are 50,000 new cases every day. And for those who do survive the virus, most will fully recover as far as we know, but you know, they may never get back to 100%. It's just not something that can be ignored. I would just encourage employers and companies to be prepared. Um, yeah. Be prepared that this is something that may very well impact your business, your, your also your reputation. I mean, mm. if you're someone that comes out as someone defiantly, adamantly against hiring someone who has had COVID, um, that's going to be an issue for them as well. It's basically trying to bridge this new gap between the uncertain and and finding how we can like work together. But yeah. I, I definitely, we're not the only ones. We were just the first wave. That's such an important point to end on. This this isn't just a one-off phenomenon. We are in the thick of this pandemic and we are still learning more about this disease every day. You know, we just recently learned that it's possible to get infected with COVID more than once. This is an issue that we're going to learn more and more about and more things are going to come up and it's something that more employers and employees will surely face. Pavithra, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your reporting on this. Of course, thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Secrets of the Most Productive People wherever you listen to podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of on the show or give us your productivity questions by leaving us a voicemail at 833-582-FAST. That's 833-582-3278. Or you can tweet us with the hashtag FCMostProductive or email us at mostproductive at fastcompany.com. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Joshua Christensen. 